0: Hello Liturgy Guy listeners, this is your host Jesse Weiler and we have another great episode for you. This week Chris and Dennis and I sit down and talk about signs and symbols in the liturgy and needless to say I learned a ton. I even learned that you can go from talking about McDonald's to the Eucharist pretty seamlessly. So without further ado, episode 4 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy.
1: I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass
0: the liturgy is
2: what enculturates the gospel for
0: us. What are you, some kind of ultra boy?
2: And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang
0: exciting, huh?
1: We're called not to some crap shoot called life, but to an adventure in
0: fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present the Liturgy Guys.
2: The whole world is made up of sounds. If I wear a, a tuxedo, I might have a very particular day that's very important. If a woman wears a big white dress and a veil and, and carries flowers and she's walking down the aisle of a church, everybody, married. everybody says, that's reasonable. If she goes to work the next day in the same outfit, people think she's crazy.
0: One time I wore a tuxedo to class in college. Just, and people just, thought just you were crazy. It. Yeah, they
2: did. Just but, to do it. Right. But you know what? You used the tuxedo as a sign in a way that was unexpected. Mm-hmm. And so signs convey information. This is what signs do in general. So... You know, when I give talks about the value of signs, I show a slide of a of a Green Bay Packers fan. Yeah, wait, just the fan, right? Go, man. Yeah, I know we got a Chicago guy on my right, Wisconsin guy on my left from Wisconsin. But they wear the cheese head, and they paint the big white G on their face, and the rest of the face is green. And, you know, it's kind of weird, objectively weird. Let's take foam and carve it into the shape of cheese and then wear it on our heads. This, is, this There's is nothing ec- wrong with that. What's well, holy see, geez, it's holy cheese, It's conventionally understood in Wisconsin as normal. The rest of the world thinks it's crazy. But what does it mean? There's an invisible reality, and probably in Wisconsin they think it's a spiritual reality, called Green Bay Packer Fan.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, if they're just standing there in their regular street clothes, day clothes, they might, you might not know anything about them. But that external set of signs that they have is revealing something otherwise not knowable to the senses about that person. So the senses say, wow, foam cheese on the head, must be a Green Bay Packer fan. And so the exterior reality is, or the exterior signs uh, point to something of the interior reality of that person.
0: Have you seen the Chicago Bears uh, you know, response to the cheese heads?
2: They make quesadillas out of them or no, something? No, there's
0: there's a f- big foam cheese grater that Bears fans
2: will wear at, at Bears games. Right, and that's how you know it's a Bears fan, right? Mm-hmm. But if the person's not a Green Bay fan and they're dressed like a Green Bay fan, then there's this worry. Is this guy a traitor? Is he sneaking over to the, mm-hmm. to the Green Bay side to root against the team? So there's always a correspondence, ideally, between the external sign and the invisible reality. Now, this is just the way the world works what kind of car you drive what you're wearing what kind of haircut you have you know how do you know a hipster from anybody else well they're listening to vinyl records and they wear the long beards and they're wearing the tight clothes and they're riding the bicycle that's how you know a hipster is a hipster mm-hmm. but if you're not a hipster and you wear bicycle what kind of bicycle clothes. like the
0: one with the one big wheel and the one little wheel yeah right? some yeah.
2: kind of like self-consciously unself-conscious move to do mm-hmm. something outside that's of our so own So That's right. so meta. exactly now so, the reason this matters is because We know things through the senses. We see, hear, smell, touch, taste. God doesn't have physicality in the way we think of it. And so how can God communicate to us? Typically, he has to communicate to us in the way that we can understand what he's saying, which means all these things of heaven that we've talked about over these weeks have to be encountered in our sense experience. And so all of a sudden, we start having things that look like something, taste like something, smell like something, feel like something... And this is the basic logic of God's communication to us, that all these liturgical things that are supposed to make us heavenly have to come to us through signs, which reveal information, and symbols, which make real and active and present that uh, idea that they're presenting to so us. What,
0: so what is the main difference between a sign and a symbol?
2: Well, generally speaking, a sign, any kind of sign conveys information. Generally speaking, though, a like sign... Like a stop sign. Right, or any kind of sign. Mm-hmm. But a sign suggests there's a reality somewhere else. So if I write uh, a word on the wall of your mother's name, that's her name, but she's not really there present with Mm -hmm. us. To encounter your mother, you have to go find your mother. So what a symbol does that's different from a sign is it makes active and encounterable and present that which it signifies. So one of the good uh, examples is that golden arches or McDonald's are not the same thing as hamburgers, but you Mm -hmm. see the golden arches and you make a right turn and you go get a hamburger. A hamburger makes itself present. Hamburgerness is present through... Uh, the hamburger itself. The supreme example, of course, is the Eucharist. So Christ is present somewhere. The Eucharist, I love how we're going right from
0: McDonald's to the Eucharist. But you know, it's all it's the same. such a simple transition. It's it all the same system.
2: Because Christ is present somewhere. We know it, and you can write a note, Christ is present. Well, that's not the same thing as encountering the presence of Christ fully in the Eucharist. So the Eucharist conveys and makes present the very reality that it signifies. It signifies Christ and brings that presence Right to you in uh, in that signification or in that sign presenting itself to you. And last week
0: we talked about when you have the Eucharist, you come back better. But when you go and have a whopper, like you're probably you're definitely worse, right? Not necessarily, <laughs> right? Because that protein
2: becomes you. You become yeah. stronger. But
0: what kind of protein are we? I mean, 100% pure beef. <laughs> no? I do not work for so Burger King. So they Incorporated. Say. So they say, Chris. You're pretty silent about this. Must Chris is know, much smarter than You must that not I know am. anything about signs and symbols. No,
1: I, I don't need to say anything. Dennis is doing a great job. The, uh, uh, but that, that's a, it's a difficult d- distinction to understand, but I think Dennis did a good job putting his finger on it. You know, uh, you. A, a, a symbol is like a sign insofar as there's this external thing that you can sense you know, through your five senses, But whereas that sign, as he said, is something that's pointing for, at something that's not there. Or bringing something to mind that's in the past. What the symbol does is it actually brings it along with it. And so symbols aren't simply pointers, they're, they're epiphanies or manifestations or bearers or conveyors, is that they actually present the unseen thing along with the sensible element. I mean, go etym- uh, etymology again, Jesse. The the, the 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 symbol means uh, sim, which means together, and baléo or balain means to hurl or to throw, and it's the root of the uh, word uh, ballistics. Did you throw
0: symbols at somebody?
1: Well, symbols are thrown, <laughs> and so a uh, a symbol is uh, two things thrown together, such that when you encounter the one, the other is necessarily inextricably a part of it. And incidentally, as, as Dr. Fagerberg told us once. Uh, Diabaleo, or the diabolic, mm-hmm. is seeking to divide things. Oh. And so the symbol. Uh, they're, 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 that
0: reminds me of like an atom smasher, like Fermilab. That's where, a. Like, where you're throwing these th- two things together to crush them.
1: Pope Benedict uh, compared the Eucharist to nuclear fission at one what? point. Yes. I'm yeah. a genius. Yeah, you, you and Pope Benedict a have a lot in We're common, Jesse. We're he was asking about you the other day. That's right. <laughs> so this is. Uh, uh, Symbols are, are, are not empty. I mean, they're, they're meaty and they're substantial. They're loaded with, uh, with significance and, and, and stuff. So it's an odd word, though, in our, in our language. Sometimes when we say the word symbol, oh, well, that, w- that was symbolic. What we mean by that is, oh, it was, it was just empty, it was meaningless, there was nothing to it. But then sometimes we use that exact same word to mean something entirely different. Oh, that was a truly symbolic gesture that, uh, that you made. And so it means just the opposite. In that latter instance, it means that it was filled with meaning, filled with substance, filled with truth. And why all of this is important for us, as you said before, is that you know sacraments are made of efficacious signs and symbols. What does efficacious mean, Chris? It means uh, well, that one I know. Come on. Take it away, Jesse. It's Jessie. effective. <laughs> That's right.
0: Duh.
2: <laughs> it does something. It does what it says. It does what it says it's going
1: to do. Yeah, so the, the catechism will say that a sacrament is an efficacious sign. And what it means is, is that it, as you say, Jesse, it does what it says it's going to do. When, when the sacrament signifies, it makes it, it does what it says. It makes present that reality. So water poured on your baby's head does what it suggests what it signifies. It washes away sin. It drowns the old self. It gives life to, to the new. So it, it's important uh, for the sake of the liturgy, which is a whole tapestry of signs and symbols, whether those are static things or verbal things or musical things or architectural things or people things, minister things. So these go beyond things. just
0: objects. It's-
1: yes. A word is, uh, is symbolic. Uh, a building is significant. Uh, you know, every time is sacramental. All of these can things.
0: Think, can some things be both signs and symbols? Or are they?
2: Well, symbol is a kind of sign. It's just a mm. sign brought to its hyper.
0: Uh, so, what, can you give me some examples? In the so, you talked about baptism in water, but maybe in the mass, like what are some things that we see that?
1: Yeah, well, I would say that that every not everything is a sacrament in the mass, but everything that you encounter in the liturgy has this sacramental quality about it meaning that it's not just a pointer to something it's a presentation a manifestation
2: an encounter with a reality so if I asked you Jesse does your wife love you of course most days yeah how does she know only on days and then and why how does she know
0: (laughs) uh how do you she she feels
2: it I feel it love is a feeling so she sits in an (laughs) isolation chamber and says oh I know Jesse loves me I,
0: I see where you're going with this. I imagine that there are probably some indications, maybe some signs that she knows that.
2: Right, so you bring her flowers at the end of the day. Which is a symbol. Well, it's kind of a sign. Um, but it becomes re- the, the higher the participation of unity becomes, the more uh, it becomes a, a sacramental or a symbol. So you can uh, kiss her, you can say nice things to her, you can write her a love letter. These are all these external things. It's a piece of paper with ink on it. But she encounters uh, something of you and your love in this, and then knows it, and it becomes real, real in her.
1: Yeah, I think the distinction between signs and symbols is, I mean, because the Church uses both of them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for example, in, in, in the Constitution on the Liturgy, uh, the Council Fathers write...
0: What is, what is the Constitution on the Liturgy? Uh, it
1: was, uh, it's, it's called Sacrosanctum Concilium. It was the first of the uh, Second Vatican Council's 16 documents and it happened to be on the sacred liturgy. And this was meant to be uh, to give the church principles and norms for the reform and renewal and restoration of the sacred liturgy moving into the third Christian millennium. Okay, okay. so
2: this is a church document. Uh, yeah. okay, got that. Of the yeah. highest authority. The council document is the highest authority we have.
1: Right, and it says at one point that in the liturgy, the sanctification of the man is signified by signs perceptible to the senses and is affected in a way which corresponds which with each of these signs. Right? So it's placing a, very, uh, a, a lot of responsibility on signs, even the word signified, right? The root of it is sign. Okay? In another place, though, th- this is uh, now Cardinal Ratzinger in his book, The Spirit of the Liturgy. He'll say, the theology of the liturgy is in a special way, symbolic theology, a theology of symbols, which connects us to what is present but hidden. So whether we're using the word sign or the word symbol, We understand that when we hear the church say things like that, what she means is, is that they are bearers of unseen realities, not simply reminders, not simply pointers they are making present to us, Jesus and the eternal liturgy. That's what's before us. And so when, when, when you go to the Mass or any, any celebration, everything that you encounter in some way, not all to the same degree, not everything is the Eucharist, not everything is equal to the, to the seven sacraments or the official sacramentals, but everything has this sort of sacramental flavor or character or quality about it that they're all occasions to touch and see and smell and uh, the uh, intang- intangible realities of our faith.
2: Chris and I got into a brawl over this once because of the Eastern— A,
0: lit, a literal brawl? Yeah, there was a liturgy brawl. Bottles were <laughs> bottles were <laughs> A liturgy broken, brawl. Of, of which I'm sure you've had spilled. many.
2: <laughs> but, you know, in the Eastern uh, churches, many of them call icons sacraments. Well, you know, that's what the icons, You'd wooden board with a picture of some holy mm-hmm. thing on it. A sacrament with a small S because they say the iconographer is using the material of the earth, wood, gold, paint, all the things icons are made of, praise and fast so they overcome their own fallenness and then ask the Holy Spirit to actually help them direct their hands so that when they paint or write this icon, they're actually revealing something of heaven in our world so that the matter of the earth is being used to reveal heavenly stuff. So it's not just a pointer, here's a picture of Jesus, oh that's right, it reminds me to look up to the sky, but that Jesus who might be up in the sky or heaven is now coming through this icon into our own reality and you actually encounter Christ. Through this material stuff, just like the Eucharist, you encounter Christ through this materiality. So
0: that's why Chris gave you his best left hook.
2: Well, he didn't and what think did that I disagree with you didn't I like remember. the idea of icons being sacraments. You thought they could be sacramentals or something, uh, not sacraments in the sense. We were wondering if the, you know grace is displayed so through, through, so through icons. you and know, so on. we
0: have the the sacraments ordination, Eucharist, you know. Uh, All that, but then there's also small-s sacraments, right?
2: Right. They're the seven sacraments of the Church, and there's a nice, precise definition. They're instituted by Christ, governed by the Church, and the grace is dispensed through them. But you can talk about anything that reveals an invisible spiritual reality as being sacramental in character. So if I make the sign of the cross, you know I'm a Christian, or at least pretending to be a Christian. It's this externalization of the otherwise unknowable or insensible um,
0: reality. So, so signs and symbols, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, this is like the most efficient way that God can communicate with us.
2: Well, it's the way, it's the way that's pr- it's just the way proper he, to
0: us. Okay, so it's, a, it's, the, it's the way that it is.
2: Yeah, if you want to communicate with a child, you speak in child language. We acquire knowledge through the senses, so you come to know God through the senses as well. The Catechism calls it the divine pedagogy of salvation.
0: Oh, well, you're going to have to bust that. Well, bust ped- that.
2: pedagogy just means the teaching method. Here's a little etymological thing. It comes from the Latin word pes, so this means foot. Mm-hmm. So uh, pedagogy is sort of following the teacher around, walking around and, and learning. And This explanation is pretty pedantic, but... Like, well, it's, it's a similar <laughs> thing. You know, pedal, pedestrian, they all come from this. But what's the method of teaching us? And it's God's method, so it's divine. And the method of uh, acquiring knowledge about salvation is through signs and symbols. That's how we know about God. If we didn't have bodies, we didn't have senses, there'd probably be some other way. Yeah, some other way. Got it. And so the angels, for instance, don't need sacramental mediation because they don't have material bodies. They don't need the Eucharist as, as we do. And so the time will come, it says, at the end of the world when the things of God will not be mediated sacramentally. It won't be signs and symbols anymore. It'll be perfect communion and feast. But while we're on earth, while we know things through the senses, things have to come to us that way.
0: So how do we go about decoding these things? Because I think there there are instances instances in which I could probably just by my nature understand what these things mean when I'm going to mass. But obviously there are times where there's something that that you know is indicative of another thing. But but I'm not entirely sure what that means. How do I know that?
1: Well, I think a couple of ways. The first is to remember that in the end, the meaning of every sacrament or sacramental or sacramental or iconographic thing is Jesus himself. He's the, uh, I, I think the term in, the, in sacramental theology, he's the res sacramenti. He's the reality of everything sacramental. So again, to, to, to call the church's uh, uh, elements of a rite, you know, signs or symbols, is not to empty them of their meaning. Rather, it's to put some substance into them, that the substance of every liturgical sign or symbol or sacrament is the person of Jesus. They're, full, they're loaded with Jesus. So that's the first thing to remember, that when you encounter um, you know, a liturgical ritual, whether it's the Mass or any of the sacraments or Liturgy of the Hours, uh, the reality that's kind of, it's hard to speak about, this behind, within, beneath... Uh, those signs and symbols is Jesus Christ. So many
0: prepositions right there.
2: <laughs> it's, wor- words fail, right? I mean, <laughs> Jesus Christ is always the right answer. Yeah, Every seminary exam, the answer is Jesus Christ. But in what way? In what way? So you see some of the liturgical things, for instance, like incense. Well, that's a good example of a sacramental sign because it signifies the rising of prayers up to heaven. And if you see a bunch of people in a room, you don't know what they're doing. They might or might not be praying. It's all internal and it's invisible. You might be able to figure it out by their posture or if their hands are folded. But you can't see their prayers rising to heaven. While you light incense and suddenly it rises up and it has this sweet smell. It's the sweet smell of prayer externalized and made knowable to the senses. And suddenly that little liturgical thing that people say, oh, well, that's just sort of highbrow liturgy for fancy liturgist types. No, that's the externalization of the sweet smell of prayer, rising around the throne of God, which is described in the book of Revelation. So that heavenly reality is coming backward. The earthly reality, which is invisible, is becoming tangible or seeable. And so it makes the experience of the liturgical action more full and more knowable. And therefore, you can be more conscious of what's happening, and therefore, you can become more glorified.
0: Are these things uh, constantly being revealed to us? Or, you know, in terms of liturgy, are, are most of the signs and symbols already known? Um does that make sense? Are, are are there continuing? Are we continuing to know and understand these in a more intimate way, perpetually, or um, are these well, some the, the, the latter? Way? The latter.
1: Okay. Uh, but again, the first principle is knowing that every reality is Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leo the Great has this maxim that he applies to sacraments that. Uh, What was visible in our Savior has passed over into his mysteries or into his sacraments. And so how Jesus worked 2,000 years ago, he continues to work in the sacramental liturgy today, in a a privileged way in the seven sacraments, but I don't think exclusively there. Uh, The catechism will say that uh, over the course of the centuries, the Church has come to determine that there are seven sacraments in the strict sense of the term. So the Church uses the term sacrament or sacramental in a much broader way. But what they all have in common is Jesus— They're all manifestations of Jesus to us. But, yeah, how is it that we can come to see or smell or taste or touch or sense Jesus in those things? Um, You said before, uh, you know, how do we decode this? And that in a certain Mm -hmm. way is right, but maybe not exactly. It's uh, because it's not sometimes um, it's not something you look up in a manual or get a decoder ring to to find, you know, how this means Jesus or that means Jesus or this sounds like Jesus. Mm Uh, the process by which we come to encounter Jesus Christ in these signs and symbols is what the church uh, calls mystagogical catechesis, mystagogical catechesis. You're going to have to break that one yeah. down. For right, right. Well, we need some etymology. Yeah, here. well, it's related to uh, pedagogy, which uh, uh, is either, you know, uh, ped foot or uh, uh, pod is foot, right? Ped is kid, like so, so the, the pedagogue is, the, is leads the children. So something like
0: right.
2: that. The word pe- because the word pest means foot, and it's the little ones learning to walk. So that's mm. why you have a pediatrician. It's not a foot doctor. It's a child doctor. Is that right? okay. What's a foot doctor? A podiatrist. Also related to oh, the word man. foot. Interesting. Okay,
0: uh, but this is a podcast. <laughs> It's a foot It's a foot Only when you break your foot do you need a foot This cast. podcast is quite a feat, I would say. Oh, man. Back, oh, Chris, to, back to Mr. Goji. Please, there's, there's way more important things to talk about. So right, this uh,
1: agoji part is, is the leading. You know, so the, the pedagogue or pedagogy. Uh, a synagogue is a leading together. There's this, uh, they call the anagogical sense of scripture, which is about leading you to heaven. But the mystes part is that which is uh, secret or hidden. Uh, and ultimately, it's the mystery of God uh, who, who, is, who became manifest in Jesus Christ. So what mystagogy does is it leads you, and the Catechism says this uh, very early uh, on, is that it's a leading from what you can see to what you cannot, from the visible to the invisible.
0: That makes and, me feel better. Yeah? Because, it's, <laughs> because in a certain sense, we, there, we have that mystagogy. I mean, we, we can only know so much, right? So... Essentially, eventually, there'll be that that mystery. Uh,
1: well, yeah, it's so what the mystery it, it, what the catechesis is, what the, what the method is, is a leading ever deeper mm-hmm. into the mystery. So you, you asked a while ago, Is is it something that we've always known or is it something that we're continually unfolding and coming to a deeper appreciation of? And it's the latter. It's this constant moving ever deeper. Uh, into the mystery through. uh, But it's not simply a catechesis in the terms of knowledge. It's not a head game. It's not simply, like I said, looking up in a manual. It's very experiential. Uh, It's with the whole body, all of the senses, in fact. Um, So through this process, one comes to encounter Christ uh, is conformed to him and led to be more like him all the time.
0: So, you know, if we're looking at this like a, a math question, it's kind of algebraic. We have one, one aspect of it, we have the sign and symbol, and we already know the answer, and so that, that mystery is that, the, like, the A. So, you know, one plus A equals, you know, Jesus, I guess, is, you know, we know the answer, we know one part of it, and then we have that mystery of, like, how do we get there? And so that's something, like you're saying, is continually revealed. Well, you have the agog is
1: how to get mm-hmm. there. That's the Got leading it. part. We know what the mistez is. We know where did we are. did you guys like
0: my great analogy there? Was that good?
1: Well, as they say, all analogies uh, fall short. I think limp
2: is the word. We <laughs> oh, had a blackboard to be better.
1: So we know where we are. I, we know where know, I
0: was so proud of myself, but now I'm just torn down.
1: <laughs> we know uh, that Jesus is the, the reality of every sacrament. Well, how do we get to him through the sacramental sign or symbol? Okay, this is the agog. This is the leading part. Um, and so I guess maybe the first thing, and see, this, again, is one of the, the beauties of the sacramental approach to liturgical studies is uh, it's, it's more difficult to do a mystagogical catechesis if you're looking at the liturgy historically or psychologically or uh, rubrically. All of those things are, are, are important, and they all lead to our understanding, but mystagogical catechesis presumes you're looking at the liturgy sacramentally through its signs and symbols, which connect us uh, to Jesus. But how do you get it? So the to understand what a liturgical sign or symbol is, is you have to look to the roots, look to the sources of where this sign or symbol came, whether it's incense, whether it's the facade of a church, whether it's the words, uh, uh, and with your spirit, uh, whether it's the person and action of the priest, whether it's uh, Easter Sunday, all of these things are liturgical signs and symbols that manifest Christ to us. So how do we get from that thing to Christ? What the Catechism will tell us Is it says a liturgical celebration is woven from signs and symbols. Okay, this is at eleven forty-five, right? So it's using both terms, signs and symbols, right? And I like the choice where it's woven. Okay, it's 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 a work of art. So it's woven from signs and symbols, and it goes on. It says, in keeping with the divine pedagogy of salvation, how God has led His children throughout salvation history. Their meaning is rooted in creation in these various categories, creation, culture, the old covenant, Christ, and as they anticipate heaven. And so I think uh, when we discuss this in class, I'm not much of an artist, but I try to to mark out on the board this image of the tree. And this comes from uh, 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 Albert the Great. It's somewhere in, in the Office of Readings where he talks about the Eucharist as being the fruit of the tree of life and I think by extension, we can say every sacrament or every sacramental symbol is kind of the fruit of this tree of life. But like any tree that you might see looking out your window, it's not just resting on top of the ground. Right? It's got roots beneath the surface that you cannot see. And the soil in which that tree or any plant is planted in, uh, that's what causes the tree to take on, in many ways, uh, the, the look that it has, right? So... Uh, back to Nebraska, where I grew up. you know it all matters the type of soil that the co- that the seed is planted if it's sandy if it's filled with. Oh, yeah, coal.
0: we hear that in the parable of the sower and the perfect sower. Right.
1: yeah. And so if you want to know what that sign or liturgical sign or symbol means, you have to kind of uncover the soil and look to the roots and it's these roots which are creation and culture and the old covenant Christ. And it's, it's like the sun of the eschaton, of heaven, is shining down on this tree, and that's giving it its own life and vibrancy as well. So if you look at a piece of fruit on a tree and want to know why it is the way it is, how it tastes, what, you know, where it came from, you look to the soil, you look to the roots, you look to the sun that shone upon it. By analogy, that's what we do in the liturgy. You want to know what the gloria means, what the church uh, door means, what the font means, uh, what uh, Christmas means, you look to the roots. Because these, uh, the meaning of these things, uh, remember, they're, they're, they're thrown together. They're not just uh, you know, the prefect for the Congregation of Divine Worship decides that this is going to mean that, or this is going to mean this. Okay? It comes from a, lar- a long history. So the liturgical signs and symbols that we use in the liturgy today uh, have been cultivated, almost in a literal sense, through millennia, uh, and that they mean things through uh, not our own artifice at all, but through many sources. And so if you want to know what that means, you have to look to the
2: sources. Right. So imagine you visit the Holy Land. And and visiting there completely changed my understanding of the notion of the garden in the desert. So when you're in Jerusalem, there's the city. You're inside the walls. You're safe. There are all these springs of water. You drive out of Jerusalem. You want to go to Galilee. You drive through the sandiest desert you've ever seen. Piles and piles of sand. Nothing can live there. And then suddenly you get near Galilee, which is fed by this stream, The whole area turns green, there are waterfalls and orange trees growing, and so this notion that Adam and Eve were happy in the garden, and then when they were kicked out of the garden after the fall, they wound up working by the sweat of their brow for their food, they're basically kicked out into the desert. And Isaiah talks about the time when the world would become a garden again. We're sort of in the desert, and the water of the garden is the Holy Spirit. And so Christ calls down the Holy Spirit upon the world to make it a garden again, so it can be like Galilee, which is this place which, where food just grows on trees and water is easy to come by. And so we're living in the desert. That's a set of symbols or signs of the nature of things, separation from God, fullness with God. And once you get that, then you can start to understand the scriptures more, and then you can understand your own condition and relation to God as needing that water of life. So, water is a good symbol
1: that we we can look at mystagogically. Yeah, it's I mean, one all of, the of most those basic things are ones that. Right. That so have. you think what? I mean, on the cultural level, what does water, or excuse me, let's start even before that, on the level of creation or nature or cosmos, what does water signify? Well, it signifies life, because all things in nature. Need, I think, need water in order to live. When we scientists look on the planet Mars, they're looking for signs that water must have mm-hmm. been because
2: water means life. Just in the world, whether you're th- Catholic or not, that's what water means. And that's a natural sign. We did not right. have a big meeting of scientists and say, water will now do this. It just came that way with creation.
1: Yeah, or theologians or liturgists or anything like that. Uh, but in addition to uh, life, it can mean death. You know, Too much water can, can drown okay, as well. But then you take it to the next kind of this next strata of soil uh, above uh, uh, nature and creation, but culture. What is you know? What do we s- identify water with? Uh, what do you use water for? In, in, in culturally, to wash. Sure. So you take yes. shower. You take.
0: Yeah. Got that right. That's right. Good job.
1: <laughs> so uh, water means purification. Or even uh, you know, if you've had a long night, you've been up with uh, uh, up with your baby uh, all through the night and you gotta to go to work the next day. What is one of the things that will kind of help to revive you and bring you back to life? You go and you stand Good in a you take a nice long hot shower and then you get out of there, oh okay, I think I can cope for the rest of the day. Now you're not a, you don't do that because you're a theologian or a Catholic, you do that because you're a human being. And so the human level signify, adds some more significant symbolism to water as well. We look at some of this what they call types or foreshadows in the Old Covenant. This is the third category of our mystagogical catechesis. What do we see water being used for in uh, the Old Covenant? And Dennis, you mentioned some of these, the waters in the desert. We think of the water of the Red Sea, the water that flowed from uh, the rock, uh, the waters of the Jordan River, the waters that uh, the Holy Spirit hovered over in Genesis. Um, And so uh, water is tied to life and salvation in the Old Covenant. Let's go to the next category, Christ. We see he was baptized in water, uh, changes water into wine. Most importantly, you said before, the answer to everything uh, in the seminary is Jesus. Jesus. This is especially true in the liturgy. We think of the water that flowed from from the side of Christ as he hung upon the cross. And so this water that we're going to use now in the sacrament of baptism or making the sign of the cross at the holy water font when you come in um, now has accrued a whole great deal of significance we go to that final category of heaven, and there's water in heaven as well. I saw water flowing uh, from the right side of the temple. Is that what it is, Dennis? Uh, uh, from the right side of the temple. So <laughs> heaven likewise has this water, and so water is not just some you know meaningless empty thing. It's loaded with significance, uh, and most especially making present uh, uh, the the waters of rebirth in Jesus
2: Christ. And, you know, a couple of other things about water. What does Christ do in the storm in the Sea of Galilee? He walks on water and he controls the storm. And he in common. Right. If water is um, known in the Old Testament as the source of destruction in the flood of Noah, he can control the flood, means he has control over sin and death. And in the book of Revelation, the the throne of God is described as being uh, surrounded by a sea of crystal. And there was a first century um, document called The Life of Adam and Eve that said, if the s- throne of God is surrounded by water, that's the chaos that keeps us from God. But if it's frozen, that is touched like crystal, then you can walk across the bridge of crystal back to Christ. And so all these symbols come together to teach you uh, how to understand God. Dennis, I, I've, just, I've
1: just recently heard you explain this to the seminarians in the class, um, maybe this last year or the year before. Uh, tell us about the water and the blood in the, in the
2: old temple. Sure. The Temple Mount is this high mountain in the center of Jerusalem. And if you read the Psalms, you see Christ sits enthroned above the flood, meaning that he's on his throne and all of chaos is around him. Nothing can harm him. And in the temple, all these animals would come to be uh, slaughtered and offered in the temple sacrifice. And there was a hole in the floor because all the blood would flow out of the animals. And then the, the spring, natural spring, was there. And the water and the blood would mix together and they would flow out of this kind of underground tunnel. Uh, to the side of the temple, into the, the Kidron Valley. This is fascinating. could that, that be the east side? The east side, the right-hand side, the the, um, the area called Gehenna. So all the waste products and the blood and water would flow out of the temple. And so I know where you're going with this. this preparation great. was that the blood and water flowing out of the side of Christ, who's the new temple, would it would be this way for them to recognize uh, Christ.
0: Is this why we have water in the preparation of the gifts, the preparation of the altar, we have water? because we have the, the wine that becomes the blood, and then we have the...
1: Yeah, that, th- this is a beautiful thing about liturgical signs and symbols. They don't always mean in the same way. It can give you a, a variety of meanings. Um, you know, when the doctor gives you a diagnosis, or your car mechanic tells you what's wrong, you don't want him to give it to you in poetic language. You want to know exactly what he means. But the, the things of, uh, of the faith... Uh, of love, of uh, uh, the great uh, human uh, uh, dimensions uh, of life, I mean, are, are poetic. There's no one word can capture. There's so many ways. There's so many ways to say it. And even we can't find, we can't exhaust the mysteries, the mysteries of faith.
2: Chris said poetic representation. That's very important because poetry is elevated speech, and liturgical speech is elevated speech. You can have everyday slang with your friends on the street, but when you're addressing the Father or you're speaking as Christ, remember, if you're, the, if you're a member of the mystical body and the priest is the head, you're speaking in your body the words of Christ given to the Father, and Christ would speak in the most perfect elevated way, speaking to his So Father this is an example of bag. signs
0: and symbols, but in, in the vernacular rather than just the objects. That yeah, you well, words,
2: words are signs. Yeah, words mean things. Right, exactly, and you can say them in a way that conveys everyday stuff, or you can use the word that ex- expresses the high caliber of what you're doing. But this water and wine in the chalice. Back to that. Yeah, back yeah, to that. You've been
1: wanting to talk about this,
0: and we just keep distracting. I'm Sorry, amazed, I remember it. Uh, so
1: it can mean a lot of things. It doesn't mean just one thing. And so some common interpretations are: yes, it signifies perhaps the blood and the water that uh, would come from the side of Christ. Even in some images, uh, you know, throughout the centuries, you see a chalice, you know, catching these things, and sure enough, the blood and water that came out is, is the birth of uh, uh, the Eucharist, the definitive birth of the Eucharist. Uh, but it also symbolizes. What's uh, what's the prayer that the priest says during this uh, mixing of water and wine?
0: I I can never hear him. He never says it that that's loud. Right. So and it's like a secret prayer. Well, it is,
1: and, and in fact, that's even the volume of his voice is a sacramental expression. Okay, so even the volume of the voice can signify symbolize things. Wow. But he speaks about uh, the the. May we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. This is the great exchange that St. Augustine speaks of and has found its way into many of our uh, prayers in the Roman Missal. But it signifies the unity of of his humanity and his divinity. And in the past, we've talked about receiving the Eucharist makes us divine. And the goal of our life is to be like God, is to be uh, uh, divinized. And so this signifies us coming together in a sacrifice. Before, we've also talked about how do we join our sacrifice to that of Jesus on the altar. Imagine when that water is being poured into that chalice. That is our humanity being joined with the sacrifice of Jesus. So these things can mean a number of truths. And think truths.
2: about wine, too. How do you make wine? Well, you have to a lot of labor to grow grapes. And what you happens to the grapes? on some grapes. The grapes get crushed. Mm-hmm. Right. And so just as we are sacrificed to become better than ourselves, this grape juice, through some kind of mysterious action, suddenly turns into wine. And wine, it says scripturally, cheers men's hearts. And so this drink at the earthly level it comes becomes this kind of special drink that makes you cheerful. What is the real true spiritual drink? Well, it's the blood of Christ that then Makes you cheerful in the this, truest yeah, this possible goes Back sense. to that
0: idea of something, you know, tearing down something to make it better. Right.
2: Well, even think of uh, some have reflected upon the the
1: elements of the Eucharist, the bread and the wine. Even on a natural or level, they kind of go through a. Well, you take a seed and you put it in the ground. If you could see my hand, I'd be making like a wave motion. He's been
0: gesticulating the whole time, and <laughs> yeah, you guys are missing Chris, out. So it goes
1: in the ground and then it starts to grow. It starts to ascend. Okay. He's, he's moving his okay, hand upward. Okay. You're good at play by yeah. play. And then it start. then it's plucked mm-hmm. and it's crushed. Oh, he just put his fingers together That's right. and now it's, in and now a it's fist. going down okay. and then it gets to be baked. And so it rises again. And oh. so kind of the life of bread or the life of wine is a series of deaths and resurrections before it even gets to you before it signifies Jesus' own death and resurrection, just on the natural, cultural
2: level. It it signifies that uh, that process. Strangely, it's yeast that's necessary for fermentation of wine. It's yeast that's necessary for bread. And you hear about this logic of be like 11, you know, go out and take this stuff to the yeast among you and and make it rise to the glory that it's supposed to have. So Chris said something very quickly before that these signs correspond to the thing that they are. So it's not just we took, you know, anything and said this will represent the body of Christ or new life. But it's things that we need for life, you know, nourishment, water and um, calories of of bread that then correspond to, to spiritual life as well.
1: Yeah, that's a great point, is that the the church's liturgical and supernatural sacraments, uh, they correspond, they grow out of, they're cultivated out of a very natural understanding. So the things that we do as Catholics have a a beautiful, natural, and human foundation. Uh, The faith doesn't uh, leave us in our humanity, nor does it turn us into angels or something like that. We remain uh, rooted in our humanity and in our nature, but we become elevated, divine. Uh,
2: perfected, right? The Catechism says the sacraments don't abolish, but purify and integrate the richness of these signs that we already know. So it takes them to this higher level of perfection.
0: Wow, fascinating. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I mean that's what, that's kind of what I was asking in the beginning. Like, how do we how do we know what these things mean? And I think that can be daunting when you go to Mass and all of this stuff is happening, and you don't know what what that means or what this means. But but understanding where everything is pointed and, and that we have you know cultural references and natural references, it, it helps to understand
2: them. Enter the world of the Lord of the Rings or Minecraft or any of these things that kids just get absorbed in the world of their video games. They slowly learn the way that system works. And at the high level, we slowly learn what the, God's method of salvation is for us. It takes a while, but the point is it's, it's rich. It. It's more and more layered, and you constantly have something to, to discover.
0: Excellent. Well, I think it's time to uh, dip into the mailbag. Let's check out an
2: email. I've been waiting for this. (laughs) Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone?
0: All right, we have another Liturgy Guys question here. This This one comes from Anonymous. Pretty short question. The question is,
2: why is incense used? Well, the uh, ritual the mass asked for incense in certain places. At one level, it adds a certain amount of solemnity. So you use incense on very important feasts, typically at funerals as well. But incense has a long history, both in uh, rit- religious ritual in general. You know, it's something precious. It's something sweet. It's something that um, these little grains come together, and they're burned, and the smoke rises. You know, in the ancient world, the burning of a sacrifice was very important because it was thought that the, the animal uh, sort of rose in the smoke up to the god. And so when we talk about uh, being enthused, it's related to this word thusia, which means uh, sacrificial smoke. And it comes from the word theos, uh, which means god in Greek. So the, the animal's uh, life was uh, carried up by the smoke, These, this question of burnt offerings. But then when it comes to uh, Christianity, there's a very specific reference to it in the book of Revelation that there's a throne in heaven and around the throne are these uh, bowls of incense. And so the sweet smell of sacrificial offerings now in the form of prayer is being offered around the throne of God. And so we do that on earth, partly because of the revelation, but partly because it sacramentalizes that which is already uh, happening but is invisible or not noble to the senses. You have all these people with their internal silent prayers that can't be seen. And then suddenly you see the smoke rise up, and it smells delightful, so it anticipates the sweet smell kind of the new garden and the new heaven, and then becomes this um, additional sensory experience to know what it might be like to be around the throne of God.
0: Well, I hope that satisfies your question, Anonymous. And uh, if you would like to submit your own question uh, for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you, and God bless.